it's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. When you have a question for me, go to clark.com slash ask. And if you want to be on the air with me, there's a place you can just check. Yep, want to go on the air. Coming up in just a few minutes, there is a scam that is growing quite quickly around the country that I'm going to share with you how to protect yourself from it, how easy the scam has become to make sound believable to people. I'm going to tell you the telltale signs. And coming up later, there are some problems this year with you getting tax refunds. And it's for a good reason to try to keep criminals out of the system, but I'm going to tell you how it can complicate your life. So, talking about complicating life, what happens when you pass away? I was reminded of this this past weekend. I got an alert from Google, and Google was really the first company to think through what happens with your identity, your information, and all that at the time you pass away. So Google developed something called Inactive Account Manager. And I asked in our pre-show staff meeting when all of us are together from TV and radio and the web and our off-air and all that, nobody, not one person, said that they had set up an active account manager with Google. And the reason this is something you should do is unless you're immortal, you're not going to be here forever. And there may be things that your heirs would want, like the pictures that you've stored over the years with Google Photos, or access to your email at the time of your passing, or any other thing that may be within Google's orbit. And so it's a pretty simple process if you go to you sign into your Google account and just search Inactive Account Manager and they'll walk you through how to set that up. And so you have your trusted contacts that you put in there and they don't have your username and password or any of that while you're living, but because they're the ones you've designated, they're the ones who have access to your information after you passed away. Facebook followed up on what Google did and came up with their own as well that is a process you set up with them that's called, uh, I think it's Contacts for Legacy or something like that, Legacy Contact, whatever, and you set that up so that you will have the ability to, with your Facebook presence, to have who you would trust and want to have access to your Facebook, have it after you've passed away. Now, Apple has not set up any procedure like this. Other companies have. Um, some have, some haven't. But the real problem is you and me, who when these procedures exist, that we haven't taken advantage of them. But one other thing, if you are someone who has a will... In your will, you should mention as part of it who you want to have access to your digital life and be as specific as is comfortable for you. One other thing you should do, if you travel a lot, airlines vary in how they recognize this, 
but you should say who you want to inherit your frequent flyer miles or hotel stay points or whatever it is because without anything stated remember that the points the rest of it are actually by contract the possession of the airline or hotel chain or whatever that you're a member of their program but many of the uh, travel organizations will recognize what a will calls for and will grant those points those miles those stays to the air that you've designated in your will mark is with us on the clark howard show hello mark how you doing all right how are you clark great thank you mark uh you got a question for me about protecting your privacy uh, yes clark i've been looking at uh maybe getting a VPN, and I've been hearing some of the talk show hosts are advertising some VPNs lately and recommending them, and I wondered what you thought about them. So a VPN, a virtual private network, allows you to have your communications hopefully be away from prying eyes, also is used a lot of times by people who want to access content in one country that's from another that without a VPN, you wouldn't be able to access it, like things with digital rights, like maybe music or movies or television. So there are many reasons that people use VPNs, and I have only used a VPN when I traveled to dictatorships, when I was in countries like China that are trying to look at everything that you do. So as using a VPN every day, the reason you would do so in the United States is so that you have the highest level of privacy potentially you could have, and this is most valuable uh, if you're using Wi-Fi. Do you use Wi-Fi routinely? With I your... do, yes. Mm-hmm. So that would be a reason that you would want to consider using a VPN. How expensive are the VPNs you're looking at? They're not too bad. Maybe uh, $8, $10 a month. See, your definition of not too bad and mine are very <laughs> different. 100 to $120 a year, I translate that. That sounds like a lot of money. So can I make a suggestion to you? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, Go look at uh, one of the technology sites like CNET and read their reviews of VPNs um, and see which ones they like the best and look for specials on whatever VPNs are recommended. Look for specials on them for an annual fee where you can get one at a good price. All right. But let me tell you something that I do. And uh, Okay, so I'm looking right now. Thanks. Producer Joel just brought it up. And on the CNET reviews, they show you right there when there are special offers on various ones, real time. But what I do is I never use public Wi-Fi. So I try to protect myself from the possibility that somebody's going to... Uh, be taking advantage of me by staying on the cellular network 
and my cellular service comes with an unlimited hotspot. So I run my laptop off my cell phone and I avoid using any public Wi-Fi. So if I'm doing Wi-Fi from my home or a friend's home or something, uh, I wouldn't need that? Well, you know, I, I, I would say I'm far from a technology expert, but the need for the VPN is not as great if you're not using public Wi-Fi, where okay. the VPN yeah. provides like kind of like a bulletproof vest. Are they safe? I mean, you have to. VPNs. They have access to your information, so. Yeah, I'm. I have never heard anything ever come up about a VPN not being itself being safe. Okay. So I guess anything's possible, but that's never been anything that I've ever heard or read anywhere. Joe joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Joe. Hi, Clark. How are you today? Great. Thank you, Joe. You have a question about your home. I sure do. So I've heard you in the past recommend that when we're looking for homeowner's insurance, we should be sure that we have enough coverage for total replacement in case we have to rebuild from scratch rather than cost of the home or value. But I'm looking for some advice how to come up with that number. Oh, man, that is that is really, really tough. But the thing is, repairing a home that's had substantial damage or even a total loss is a much higher cost per square foot in most places in the country than what it costs to build that property um, originally because so many homes around the country are built now by production builders Mm. where they're building in a a big plan development uh, many times with the publicly traded builders they're building hundreds of homes or even uh, in the thousands of homes in a major development, and there's efficiencies they have in building that way that you don't have when you're um, building back one single property. So there, there is no solid rule of thumb I can give you on what it would cost to rebuild, but believe it or not, your insurer may be able to give you a sense based on your zip code what it would cost to rebuild per square foot. But the cost okay, of good. cost of rebuilding is higher per square foot than likely what your home would sell for as a home all intact. Very good. So, I, yeah, I do use um, one of the insurers that you speak of often. So I will I will chat with them first and go from there. And I'll tell you what's funny about this question, Joe. Usually I get a complaint from somebody where an insurer has said, you need to insure the value of your home for more. And people will think that the insurer is doing it just to take advantage of them and get more premium, where the insurer boosting the amount of that coverage is actually good for you. So you don't end up with exposure. And that's why... Uh, if you've been in a home a long time and the value that is placed on it by the insurer has not been steadily increased as construction costs have gone up, the cost of materials have gone up, labor, then likely you are really underinsured. 
And Joel, I'd like to do an Ask Clark if we have time. Yeah, let's do a Clark. Paul wrote in and he said, I was looking at a flight to Europe yesterday afternoon and it cost about 800 bucks. And then I went back in a few hours later. It was $1,200. I've never seen this happen before. Do you have any advice? I'm not traveling until October. So a uh, couple of things. Prices for airlines that used to move only every 30 days now are adjusted constantly. In fact, just as recently as maybe five years ago, airlines manually changed their prices often early in a week. And so you'd have a pricing department that would come in and look at booking trends and they'd change prices. All that has been automated now. And the prices can move up or down by dramatic amounts, even within minutes, and move repeatedly over the days and weeks. If you're traveling to Europe in October, I would wait till there's a sale that covers spring and fall. Fares to Europe have been very, very cheap lately compared to what they have been in recent years, and it would be to your advantage to giving this a little more time to run. And it's very common that airlines will offer sale fares that are good for April, May, September, October as one deal. And I've already seen some of those pop up around the U.S. I'd also go to something like google.com slash flights and set up a fare alert to track the fares for where you're planning to go in Europe. And Google will... Uh, email you when there with an alert when there is a special deal on that flight and hopefully you'll get it in time to grab a special deal as they alert you today's clark rageous moment is an update on something that has been a constant irritant for many people that we've talked with here on the clark howard show i have a new updated warning for you about virtual kidnapping Rip-offs. Outrages. It's a Clark Regis moment. There's been a crime that has gone on for a while, specifically targeting the elderly, and it's called the grandparent scam, where uh, criminals call someone, and based on social media, they may well know the names and ages of your grandchildren, and they tell you that your grandchild's been in a wreck or your grandchild's in jail or they pretend they're from the hospital or they're a lawyer or whatever and that they need money wired right away for the care of or for the legal problems of a grandchild. And this one has been around for a while, but it's morphing into what's known now as the virtual kidnapping scam targeting specifically wealthy people. And I saw a story in the Los Angeles Times about how people in one of the wealthiest communities in the United States, Laguna Beach, California, are specifically being targeted. The criminals coming up with pretty sophisticated efforts where they know the family tree, they know the family members, and they're gathering all the information from what is posted online about your family. So then they will contact you, and they know the name of your kid, they know how old your kid is, and your kid's in trouble, and they have the whole backstory developed, and unfortunately, parents in a panic 
are immediately sending money to the crooks who are making up this whole tall tale. And so what you need to know, and remember, your kids may be on, if you're from a wealthy family, they may be on a trip somewhere outside the United States. And the criminals take advantage of the pictures posted and all the rest. As a family, make sure that you know how to stay in touch with each other and that you think twice, three, four times and do everything you can to verify independently that your child is in fact in trouble before you respond emotionally out of a parent's love and wire money that turns out to be going to a crook when nothing actually is wrong in the life of your son or daughter. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where you learn how to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our main website, Clark.com. So we've had a problem that was completely out of control as recently as two tax seasons ago that now is becoming less of a threat, and it's where criminals impersonate you file a tax return as if they are you, and they get a refund made up with all false numbers, then they're off to the races with it. When you go to file your tax return, you can't because a criminal beat you to it. If you have had a lot of money withheld from your paycheck over the last year, you then will wait typically 10 to 14 months to get your own legitimate refund because the IRS paid a fake one to somebody faking it as you. So this became such a bonanza for criminals that the IRS had to come up with a system to try to prevent false filing of returns using someone's identity. Unfortunately, according to USA Today and the Detroit Free Press, The system is so strict that now many legitimate taxpayers filing this year are getting caught up in the system where the database thinks for various reasons that you are in fact a fraudster and not yourself filing your own return. So (laughs) sometimes the cure is not as bad as the disease but is rivaling it Because in either circumstance, you can't get your own money back from the IRS. So what happens if you file a return and the IRS, for whatever triggers they're using, and they don't disclose what the triggers are because that would tip off criminals how to get around it, you may come up as a suspect fraudster and they will not proceed with giving you your refund. And what happens next is the IRS will send you a letter saying that they suspect fraud in the filing of your return and for you to contact them and they give you these procedures to contact them. And when you do so, they'll ask you a series of questions that as best I can tell from what I've read are uh, challenge questions they're getting from one of the three major credit bureaus. And they'll ask you some obscure things. If you can answer all those questions, then they proceed with processing your return and issuing your refund. 
However, if you can't answer the obscure questions, then you are still considered to be a fraudster, even if you're the legitimate taxpayer, and you have to go in person to an IRS office and bring the letter with you, bring documentation they'll tell you to bring, bring proof of ID, like um, what they, whatever they may require. If you have a passport, they'd want to see that. Other documents they'll tell you. And then at that point, if you satisfy them that you are who you say you are, they will process your return. Now, this does not mean that tax refund fraud is over. A lot of the criminals follow the path of least resistance, and the likeliest next target would be if you live in a state with a state income tax, that they may look for, for vulnerabilities in the state income tax system. And even if they don't try to file a false return, if they're you at the federal level, they may try to do so at the state level. And each state that assesses a state income tax has its own procedure if a false return has been filed as if they are you, and also a state may have a procedure like the feds where they want to verify identity before they process a refund for you. The answer remains the same as it's been through all these years of tax refund fraud. You don't want to get a large refund anymore because that refund that you're expecting may sit and sit and sit. And remember, it can sit for over a year before you get it. It's best to reduce withholding so there's not a big refund that you're not getting your hands on if there is a problem with a crook. Kelly's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Kelly. You got a question for me about saving money. I do. Um, So my my husband and I contribute to our 401k plans through work, but up to this point, we've avoided opening a Roth IRA just because there are so many options out there. We we don't know how to choose. Um, We like our investments to be pretty hands-off, but we didn't know, you know, is there a their favorite broker that you'd recommend in that situation? Yes. So if you decide you want to do Roth IRAs, there are three companies I like for you to choose among to do that initial Roth IRA. And they're all three low-cost companies. They're um, Charles Schwab, Vanguard, and Fidelity Investments. Do you do business right now with any of those three? I don't. Okay, so then it's an open market for you. Since you can go anywhere, I would say that I would like for you to look at opening Roth IRAs at Vanguard. Okay. The advantage with Vanguard is it's a co-op that's owned by people who have accounts there. And so they offer ultra low costs on their investments and no commissions. So the dollar put in goes to work for you as a dollar. And in order to not be um, make it complicated, even if you went to any of the three, there's a very simple choice for you to put your money into known as a target retirement fund. Okay. Where you pick the year closest to when you think you're going to retire and they're sold in five-year increments. So um, I'm sorry, can I ask you approximately how old you are, Kelly? So we're in our late 20s, early 30s. Okay. 
So you would be looking at, let's say, a 2050 or 2055 fund. Okay. Because that would be kind of your range of when you'd be looking at retiring. And so it's really simple. You just open the Roth IRA account and you link it to your checking account and then set it up either to automatically contribute a little bit each month or however you want to fund it and then just put the money in the target retirement fund and they handle changing the mix of investments over the years to be appropriate for how far away or how close you are to when you're going to retire. So the only thing you have to do is open the account electronically, pop the money in, and they do everything else. Okay. And you can put in a year, you can put in from $0 to 6000 and anywhere in between. Um, to open an account with Vanguard, though, in a target retirement fund, you have to open your account with 3000 Okay. With Schwab and Fidelity, you don't have to worry about those minimums. So if that's more money than you wanted to do, you could open a target retirement fund with either of those. Okay. And then I, I assume that you can probably just have it um, send a set amount uh, each month to that account. Exactly. And what's okay. easy, if somebody wants to max it out, now with 6000 being the amount, you can just set it up where every month 500 goes in. Okay. Now, if you did choose to go with Fidelity, there's a wrinkle with Fidelity. Fidelity has two kinds of target retirement funds, and I only like one, and it's called the Fidelity um, Target Index Retirement Fund, or Index Target, whichever place they put the word index, because um, they have a, a target retirement fund that's that has expensive management fees and then one with really cheap management fees. And the one that has index in its name is the cheap one. Okay. Good to know. So, and Fidelity has no minimum at all. You could walk into one of their offices or open online and open a Roth with just whatever money you have. But if you can do the 3000 I would say go Vanguard. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Sure. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. I love that. Someone opening a Roth in their 20s. Eric's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Eric. Hello, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Eric. You have a sticky thing you want to talk to me about? I do. Uh, Not too sticky, just curiosity. Um, So I've got a credit card that I've had for quite a while, and I've got a family member who is an authorized user on the card, and I was wanting to know if it's time for some cleanup, trying to remove them from the card. And I wanted to know if there was a way to essentially get them a credit card under the same company while removing them from being an authorized user on my card to not being their credit. Okay, that is a great question that's really thoughtful of you. So it's not necessary that the card be with the same company, uh, but that individual, I'd like them to go through a couple of steps, all right? Okay. I'd like them to sign up for a, a credit dashboard with Credit Karma and Credit Sesame. Okay. Where they're able to see kind of where their credit standing is now. Is the authorized user status that you gave them, was it to deal with past bad credit or past no credit? 
no credit. Okay. So hopefully they've got now a solid record that'll show up on Credit Karma and Credit Sesame, and they'll be able to see an approximation of where their credit standing is. And a new feature that Credit Karma added in the last 90 days is where without an inquiry on your relative's credit report, they can see what cards they're likely to be approved for. Okay. So they don't do an application for credit and then get a decline, which is a double whammy. You know, they have then a hard inquiry on their credit and they still don't have the credit they were looking to get. Sure. So that way, um, from the issuer that you have them authorize user status now or any other that might be on that Credit Karma dashboard, they'll be able to see what they might be good for. Go ahead and apply for that credit. Once they're issued the credit, then you remove them as authorized user from your card. Very good. And who has the actual possession of the plastic? I do. All right, great. So the issuer may want you to just cut it up. They may want that sent back. They'll tell you what they want to do, and they'll also tell you what you need to do to have them removed as an authorized user. Okay. And it was nice of you to help out your relative. Oh, of course. Well, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Jay joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jay. How you doing? Good. Jay, how can I serve you? Uh, I was talking to some guys at work lately, and one of them was telling me about how he did this uh, loan forgiveness. He had all federal loans through, or for college loans. And me and my wife were starting to talk about it, and we didn't even really know where to begin as far as, far as what to do and, and how to even approach it, I guess. All right. Well, let me tell you how, how the game plays. There is federal student loan forgiveness for people in what are considered under the law to be public service workers which could be any of a variety of government jobs, working at a nonprofit organization, being a public safety officer of some kind, police officer, firefighter. And under those forgiveness rules, after 10 years of on-time payments, your remainder of your federal student loans are forgiven. But there are okay. set rules for qualifying, or either you or your wife in a public service kind of job, uh, no. All right. So then that brings the other program forward, which is a student loan forgiveness program, which either after 20 years of payments or 25, the remainder of your federal student loans are forgiven. Okay. And under that program, you still have to pay taxes on the money forgiven. Public service workers don't, but it's still a big savings if yeah. the remaining balance of your loans are forgiven. She's only been graduated for about uh, three years now, and she didn't have a very good credit score whenever she applied for all these loans, and now we're, we got married and everything. And I have, like, my credit score is over 800, I think. At least that's what it was whenever I bought my house a few years ago. Do you think it would be in our best interest to, like, uh, like refinance, I guess? Well, do you and know what interest, interest rates? Rate. Do you know she what interest said anywhere from six to eight percent? 
All right. So at six to eight, there are private lenders that will refi student loans and interest rates that are still fairly low with a high enough score and high enough income, you may get really uh, decent offers for refining, but then you're going to give up any chance of having loan forgiveness. Yeah. So uh, the majority, the majority of her loans are like federal loans, but she did go to a private school first and then transferred, and she has some debt through, uh, actually through the school itself. So. And I think those are the highest interest rates, too. All right. So that would make a lot of sense to at least take those out of the picture. And you can look at the the daddy of doing student loan refinancing is SoFi. If you ever heard of social finance, it would be good to go get a quote from them. Uh, you also could see if you could get a deal um, refinancing those possibly with Lending Club or Prosper, but you're probably not going to do as well with either of those. But if you can take the rate down and you're willing to take those on for your wife, that would be a great opportunity to reduce the carry cost. And at Clark.com, I have information for those federal loans for uh, the public service loan forgiveness and the regular loan forgiveness program so you know what hoops she has to jump through to pay those loans over the years and then get that loan forgiveness. It's time for a sizzling deal. That is, if you drink coffee, this is worthless to me because I don't drink coffee. But I don't know if you've heard Burger King try to get people in their restaurants in the morning is offering a coffee subscription. It's $5 a month. You can go for coffee every single day. And get a BK Cafe, because we can't call anything coffee anymore. But you pay the 5 bucks a month, signing up through the app. If you live in Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, you are out of luck. You're not included. And local participation may vary, but $5 a month compared to what most people pay to get a cup of coffee somewhere, it's a deal. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.